Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, you and I focus on the China-Africa story. We've been doing it for almost eight years, and got to say, Generally speaking, when news about China Africa crosses the the lines and the wires and you know what what do they call it these days the you know the Google News alert, um, it's not the top story for the most part. Very very rarely, and I would say basically every every five years we get top story billing uh, at the FOCAC, the Forum on China Africa Cooperation Summits. But in between those those big summits, there's not a lot of top billing for the China Africa story. So it was a really a pleasant surprise to see the New York Times magazine uh, about a couple Sundays ago, big front page story on China, Africa. And in some ways, it's a milestone because it, when the New York Times covers this story, it, you know, it sets a benchmark because the New York Times still to this day is the paper of record in the United States. I know a lot of people will probably disagree with that. Uh, but it does set the news tone and the news agenda for big parts of the English-speaking world. So when this story crossed by Brooke Larmer, uh, it was, to me, really quite exciting. For me, too. And it, it, as you said, it indicates that it's it's coming onto the U.S. radar. Um, you know, so, so we've seen in the, in the last few months, there's increasing calls, frequently from the right-wing press in the U.S., for the Trump administration to, to pay more attention to the expansion of China and Africa, which is fascinating for me. It's just fascinating for me to see how America discusses this issue. Um, and this was a, a massive kind of moment, you know, of enjoyment for me. Is China the world's new colonial power? That was the headline of the May 2nd issue of the New York Times magazine. It was again written by Brooke Larmer, who joins us on the line from Shanghai after kids are in bed. Thank you so much for joining us and making the time uh, in between your various stories and uh, your child your child care responsibilities. Great to have you on the show for the first time. Thank you, Eric and Kobus. Now, Brooke, you and I spoke uh, a couple months before you embarked on your journey to Namibia, and uh, we just did a little bit of a casual debrief. And I'd be curious to kind of, you know, hear about what your impressions were of covering this story before you went, because you're not uh, focused on China-Africa studies. You're based in Shanghai, so you've been covering the Chinese world for a very long time. But the China-Africa story was relatively new to you. What surprised you the most from the time from before you went and when you were actually on the ground reporting this story? What was the biggest challenge to your preconceptions? Well, I guess, I guess the, just to start off, I would like to say that uh, I don't pretend to be an expert in the China-Africa relationship. I also feel like the, uh, you know, I have traveled around the world and reported from six continents, and in each place I've been surprised and, and uh, pleasantly surprised to, to meet Chinese uh, workers and engineers in, in almost every place that you go on, the, on Earth. And so I've, I've, I've always been curious about uh, China's impact in the world. Uh, and I think uh, one of the reasons uh, I focus so sharply on one small country in Africa is I think, you know, look, this is a, a ludicrously complex relationship that China has anywhere in the developing world, whether it's Latin America or Africa or Asia. And I had no interest in doing a big, broad survey uh, uh, from 30,000 feet to try to uh, conjure up what this all meant. I, I was much more interested in, and I generally tend in my reporting to be much more interested in seeing what it looked like and felt like on the ground um, and in one specific place. And Namibia is a, a very small country. It's only 2.5, 2.4, 2.5 million people uh, of vast deserts and open spaces. 
but it has a, a wide variety of contact points with China. And I thought that it offered a, a, a kind of a small uh, test tube, if you will, for, for kind of how that relationship felt. And yes, I was, you know, this is something that was, uh, I was really excited about in, in speaking to you. I think I, I already got an, a sense for how, how varied the experience is on the ground. I think a lot of people that look at, the, uh, at, at China in general, but also in, in, at when they go into another country, is to see it as one monolith and that all the state-owned companies and the people that go are all basically the same. And I think what was, what was so interesting to me was to see the, the variations in experiences uh, of different generations of Chinese immigrants and uh, people who have gone to Africa uh, to, exper- to, to, to work and to join either in, in, in projects uh, that are private, pri- by private enterprise or by state-owned enterprise as well as by, uh, by themselves doing uh, as merchants or traders. And I really wanted to get a sen- evoke a sense of what it was like for the Chinese that were in, these ex- uh, 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 in this environment as well as for what it's like for, for Namibians to feel uh, what this relationship is like with China. So I felt like it, it offered me a very nice, small, a, a small enough place where I could actually get my head around it because it's very complex, but it, I, had a, I, ha, I had a great a lot of fun uh, reporting it. So you, you're speaking to us from Shanghai, um, and you know, you've obviously spent a lot of time in China. Um, so what was it like for you to go from an experience of being in China, you know, kind of dealing with Chinese systems, to seeing them, as it were, from the outside in Namibia? Um, what did you see in Namibia that you felt, oh, okay, this is very similar to how it would be done in China? And where did you see, oh, this is actually done differently outside of China, even though it's Chinese companies doing it? Well, I, you know, I've, I've reported on China outside of the outside of China before, and I've done a, a series of, of, of stories on, on, for example, Chinese seeking education in the United States. And I think one of the one of the kind of consistent things that you see is that a Chinese environment, uh, Chinese when they're uh, in in a company or in a in a in a situation abroad, often kind of group together and 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 try to and, and relate to each other. Uh, almost exclusively, and, and I was, I was, I guess I was somewhat surprised to see that this was also replicated in in Namibia, where even in places where there are only a, a few families, a few Chinese families in a town, their relationship with the rest of the town was relatively limited, and their entire operation, whether it was a mom and pop shop or something bigger, was usually done through other traders or people from their home province that would also organize for. Uh, container shipments to come to, to come to Namibia to supply their stores, or their, their their social life also revolved largely around other Chinese families or Chinese workers. So that did not surprise me so much. But I guess I guess I hadn't, you know. And I've traveled to Africa quite a bit and over the last uh, three or four years. I've been there maybe six or seven times. Uh, I had always been aware of the Chinese relationship there. But what I what I felt was was most interesting to me was to be able to actually sit down with uh, many of these Chinese in different circumstances and to understand how they, how they perceived it. And it wasn't always, it wasn't always the same uh, across the board. And I think uh, what, I, what I enjoyed about that most was just, just kind of understanding how they related to their, to their local environment. And, you know, some of them were, were reaching outside of their own community, but for the most part they were relating to each other and thinking about what this meant for their own country and for their own future in that country. I mean, the younger generation especially is not there for the long term uh, by and large they're usually there for short term shorter term contracts and their eyes 
while they were excited to be in a new place and have these opportunities uh, that were both adventurous and uh, gave them a new view of the world, I think they, are, they were still very much fixated in thinking about what this meant for their own country and for their own future in that country. I'd like to talk a little bit about that access that you got, because uh, that was the most interesting part of the article for me, was that you were able to cross into this world that so many foreign correspondents and foreign journalists uh, struggle with. So you and I spoke before you went. Uh, it's a common thing that Cobus and I do is we help brief journalists to, to cover stories like this, and they'll call us and they'll say, well, the biggest problem is how do I actually speak to Chinese people when I'm on the ground? And that was one of the challenges that you and I discussed going in. And I'm just curious how you were able to do that, that they were able to trust you uh, you, for example, profiled a young man by the name of Dylan Tung, who was 29 years old. You really got his story, it seemed like. And that's a type of reporting that a lot of journalists are probably quite envious of you because that's something they would like to, to do and to tell this story. What did you do to overcome the, those obstacles that often present themselves from trying to cover the Chinese in Africa? Well, I think one of the things that I've, I've been pleasantly surprised by is that when you when you speak Chinese uh, or speak at least uh, with some some fluency, people are very, uh, Chinese are, are are often quite interested in in, in speaking to you uh, if you meet them on their on their level. I I had different ways of kind of getting. I, I did go through official channels through companies and through the embassy. Uh, I eventually got the embassy to respond. Um, I also uh, went through some of the business associations, which are uh, sometimes. Uh, less uh, eager to have outsiders come in looking looking into their uh, affairs, but I met I met some Chinese businessmen on the side. But I also had some some lucky encounters. And one was, for example, there's a there's a guy in the in the story. He's a young man who works for a telecom company in Windhoek, and we just happened to meet at a, at a at a at Joe's Beer House, one of the most famous beer houses in Windhoek. And he happened to be there with a group of his colleagues. I was only there meeting someone else. And I just wandered over and talked to them while they were having a goodbye party for their, for their colleague going back to China. And we sat and, and we, we got to know each other a little bit. And I, I, I followed up with him with this, this guy, uh, Sean Ha, who was, who was very intelligent, very thoughtful about what his role at the company and meant for, for Namibia and what it meant for him going, going back to China. You know, he had... He had. He was like like many of the younger generation going to uh, to, to China. He had been in in, in Xi'an, uh, making a decent living for a, a young engineer, but had been sought out by a headhunter who who uh, told him that he could make ten times the amount that he was making in China if he worked in Africa. And he jumped at the chance, uh, as many young men in China will, in order to build a nest egg from which they can buy some property, get married, and, and, and really set themselves up for the future. And now he's, you know, we had, a, we had very long kind of heart-to-heart -heart talks about what this meant for his future. And he's, he doesn't really know his daughter, who is, he, he, he did go back and got mar get married, and he had a daughter, and he doesn't know his daughter all that well. Um, and they came out and tried to join him, and uh, they didn't make it very long. But now uh, I just talked to him after the, the, the story came out, and he said that they're going to give it another try because the the uh, the livelihood that he can make in Africa is so much better than he could expect if he came back home. He says if he came back home, he would have to be begging for a job from the local kids from his from his little village in uh, in uh, Shanxi province 
who, who have made a uh, who have made a fortune out of date trees, and he would have to find a find a way in. He wouldn't be able to use his engineering skills to make the kind of money that he makes in Africa. But he's he's an example of the kind of guy who you know you speak to him for a little while, and then they, they really you know the, in many cases they they want to open up uh, to 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 talk about what this means for their own lives, and they they you know they they like to see themselves uh, in the narrative of their lives fitting into the narrative of their country. On the Namibian side, um, you know, kind of how, how how forthcoming did you find Namibian officials talking about the nitty gritty of the the China Africa relationship, especially in the case of Namibia, because it was also going through this big scandal, you know, of, of a prominent Chinese businessman um, and his relationship to the president. Um, you know, like, were you? Did you hit a wall there when when speaking to them, or were they relatively open about about the kind of decisions they make and the negotiations they undergo with with the Chinese? Uh, I found that they were. I found some uh, officials quite reticent, but others extremely forthcoming. Um, I believe that uh, on a government, I think overall, what what made Namibia so interesting for me was not simply that you had these many different contact points, but also that. There is. There, it seems to be a relationship that's going through an evolution. That's it's, it's at an inflection point where locals, both from from the government down to down to the local uh, communities, including the uh, wildlife conservation community, are starting to think again about how to recalibrate their relationship with China. And I felt this in in the government. I had a, a very interesting conversation with the finance minister, um, who has. Uh, in the past year, has kind of pulled away a little bit from the kind of just accepting of of just uh, loan tenders from uh, from China, and is is kind of concerned not simply about the the potential that that has for adding to their debt, uh, and debt to GDP uh, ratio was uh, is something that they're very concerned about for macroeconomic terms, but also because it had created a culture that they felt uh, was not necessarily. Um, healthy. It was there was there was some a degree of, of corruption involved in some of the loan tenders, as well as uh, the fact that in Namibia, despite the fact that it's a stable, a relatively stable economy for Africa, has high degree of unemployment as well as one of the highest uh, rates of inequality uh, in the world. And so the, they, the the finance minister was very clear that he he was looking to. Uh, to, to find a, a, a new balance in the relationship that would have a greater impact on employment and on equality. And I felt that in some ways these, uh, the loans that, and, and the investments that came from China were very welcome, but they were quite narrow in terms of their impact on the economy in those broader terms. Well, let's stay so with I, the – oh, I'm sorry. Keep going. Go ahead, Eric. No, I was going to say, let's stay with the finance minister. And I'd like to read a few quotes that you that you got. And I, I'm going to not pronounce the name correctly. Kali Schletin? Schletin, okay. Um, so here's a quote. We welcome China very much because for the first time it gave us a real alternative to a Western-driven agenda, whether it was South Africa or the Western world. And I can imagine that a lot of African governments feel the same, that finally they've broken the chains of dependency on the West. Uh, the finance minister then goes on to say, um, but the Chinese say we want you to be masters of your own destiny, so tell us what you want. But they have conditions too. They want de facto total control over everything. So it's difficult to bring about a situation that is truly beneficial. I have to say, when, when I read that quote, that is not the type of statement that you hear coming from an African finance minister very often these days. In fact, more 
Uh, what you see is the Rwandan finance minister, the Ugandan finance minister, Nigeria. That's just in the past two months who have been to Beijing hat in hand asking for billions of dollars in development money. And what I'm hearing from you is that Namibia might be part of a new wave of skepticism towards the Chinese, worried that the debt levels are getting too high. And ultimately, if those debt levels get too high, sovereignty could be compromised because the Chinese, as he pointed out, want de facto total control. That, that's, that's certainly one very important aspect. I think um, the, the, there's another, another aspect of this is that from, you know, the loan tenders that have come from China have been extremely generous. Most of the, one of the, you know, China loves to say that we are, uh, we are, we do, we do not interfere in the internal politics or the, we, we, of any country. We have no conditions on our loans. And yet what, what uh, the finance minister was saying is that, yes, that's true, but they, they do have these conditions where most of the loans are almost de facto going to Chinese companies that then often uh, offer uh, their supply contracts to other Chinese companies, mostly state-owned companies, and it doesn't often break the circle. Now, in recent years, Namibia has, has introduced a system by which they have joint venture partners. But these, uh, the local joint venture partners that go in with the Chinese to, to uh, bid on these loans uh, are often companies that have just been formed for this express purpose and are not actually experts in the, in the construction field or the field that they're actually bidding for. They often are just politi- very politically connected, often with high-level uh, government officials, uh, relatives who form these companies. And they're seen as vehicles for uh, further potential corruption as well as uh, uh, amassing uh, wealth in, the, in a very small percentage of hands. So I think... There's a they actually have gotten a name for themselves. These people, these joint ventures that help the Chinese get their loans and and will then let them have a free hand in what they're doing are called tenderpreneurs, and uh, they're 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 kind of looked at a bit scathingly by uh, by Namibian society. And I think there's a, there's a sense that they need to change this change the way this works a bit. And I don't I don't know exactly how they'll come back to it. Uh, many of the, the the loans that were were frozen last September by the Namibian government were ones that were were considered not quite essential, like building the Parliament Building. Uh, they were they're, they've done a lot of kind of trophy projects that uh, they just don't want to do those trophy projects anymore. And maybe Namibia has a, a freer hand because its economy is in a slightly uh, healthier state than some of these other African nations. I think that's probably uh, is definitely true. But at the same time, it's interesting to see how they're, they're, they're trying to find a way that even a weak, a, a very small country uh, can try to at least get some of their own conditions into the equation. Kobus, when I hear you know, Brooke talk about, you know, tenderpreneurs and the cycling of, you know, loan money into Chinese companies, uh, really it reminds me of what the United States and European aid in Africa have been doing for decades. Uh, the, the United States is very upfront that aid is intended to be, uh, you know, partially a support for American exporters. Uh, they don't contract locally as much because that's not politically popular back home. That is the same in France. It's the same in Germany. It's the same in UK. And again, I think what we're seeing is how the behavior of the Chinese in Africa is actually in so many ways not all that different than what we've seen with previous foreign powers in the region. I agree. I mean, for, notoriously for a while, Japan made more money from its from its foreign loans than it actually ever paid out because of loan repayments and, and interest on loan repayments. So J- Japan was for a few years getting more money in than it was actually like going out with its its yearly aid um, 
payments. Um, so, you know, the, when, when I hear the word tenderpreneur, I think South Africa, because I think that is actually where the word comes from. Um, and that, you know, it, it relates to, to a, a system that was set up to try and, and address the, the, one of the fundamental problems of a post-colonial society, which is that the majority of the population is, is, is de-skilled and that they have very low skills base. So, they, so it's very difficult to just say, okay, we're setting up companies to, you know, for locals to, to participate in these projects when there are so, such a low level, um, l low skills level in the country. Um, and you know, in in order to try and rectify that, you end up with corruption. That that is that is what's one of the lessons from South Africa. Um, Brooke, what I, what I was wondering is, you know, could you get any kind of real real feeling? I know that you were only there for a while. Could you get any real feeling about whether the Chinese investments that that you were seeing did you get did you see investments that you felt is going to materially advance Namibia along the route to becoming a richer nation? I mean, you mentioned in your article, for example, uh, massive port expansions um, in Volfus Bay. Um, you know, did, did did you get a feeling that that some of these some of these debts were taken on with with actual results that that will actually ameliorate their effects? I'm not sure if any of the loans themselves would, and I, I think the the finance minister would be hard pressed actually to come up with one that actually that he felt was was a a, a, a truly uh, truly beneficial uh, in the long term for Namibians. That's not to say that this in infrastructure that China is building is not essential. I mean, as you know, Namibia's roads are almost there. I think the, the vast majority of roads are gravel, sand, or dirt. And if you go anywhere from from Bay to all the way up to the the border uh, with Angola, Chinese are building roads uh, as well as many other things all across the country. And these things are are necessary. And I don't think anyone argues with their with the necessity of of that kind of infrastructure to advance an economy. I think the frustration comes in uh, the skills transfer. They feel like because of many of these uh, some of the loans are held quite tightly within. Uh, a Chinese uh, community, uh, it's hard for the, the, the skills to transfer, especially because you don't have companies uh, of, of a scale that can actually compete or can, can contribute in a way that would be, would be beneficial to a broader part of the population. The one investment that is really uh, uh, you know, positive and that has the biggest impact on Namibia right now is the Husab mine, which is uh, China General Nuclear and Swakop Uranium uh, have invested a huge amount in this mine. And I think it does have, uh, other than tourism, it's really the only other bright spot in the Namibian economy right now. There, that said, there is also some reservations about how much this, this investment, which already is closing in on $5 billion in both the construction and the production phase, how much that, how many multiplier effects that will have for the for the country? I mean, the finance minister was also saying that the original deal that that in which the CGN bought that mine uh, was done outside of the country and had no real benefit. It, it was it was uh, he bought it. They bought it from an Australian company, and it, that that purchase did not really have much impact on on Namibia. And there's also a tax abatement, which reduces the amount that they'll have to pay in taxes until they've actually recouped many of their costs. So there's some frustration even there on the very pure direct, foreign direct investment about how much this actually ripples, has a ripple effect across the economy. So I think there's, there's, there's frustration, I guess, in terms of 
you know, yes, it's great to have physical things that add to your GDP and to your imports and exports and to your, you know, the attraction of Walvis Bay and, and that coast as being a, a clearinghouse for, for many countries in southern Africa. All those things are good and, and are things that Namibia as a government wants to pursue. But I think there's some frustration with how does this actually help our, our, you know, our, 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 our people in a broader sense of, of skills development and employment and, uh, and uh, poverty. You know, Brooke, I really enjoyed the article from top to bottom. Uh, I have to say, though, that I was a little bit skeptical when I saw it first come out, and I'm going to kind of take a shot at your editors. And what a lot of people don't understand is that journalists who write the stories often don't write the headlines. So this is actually not going to be a criticism of you, and I know that you're too much of a gentleman and you like your job too much to criticize your own editors, so allow me to do it. Um, the, the, the headline is just god-awful. Um, is China the world's new colonial power? And it's that word colonialism that it seems like, you know, Europeans and Americans, when they see China, or more importantly, I think Cobus would say when they see Africa, uh, you know, foreigners in Africa, it, it, that word is almost an automatic trigger. And what was so unfortunate about the use of that word in the headline was the comments uh, that you can read on the New York Times website. And one of the joys of reading the New York Times is how many well-educated, thoughtful, considerate, articulate readers they have who contribute comments to every story. And here there are 334 comments in Cobus. That is, you know, that's a volume of comments that we don't see on China-Africa stories. So it was kind of exciting. I went right through all of them. And so many people... Uh, kind of came back to this word colonialism. And let me just read one for you. T.H. Mack uh, from Washington, D.C. wrote, Colonial power means complete political and economic control of a foreign country. China doesn't fall into this category. 126 people like that comment. That's representative in many ways of the kind of theme of a lot of the comments. And I feel like that headline distracted people from the kind of essence and the core message that you were trying to kind of report. So talk to me about the word colonialism and how did it factor into your own reporting, even though it was in the headline, it didn't seem like it was a strong theme of the story. <laughs> yes, I mean, actually, um, I felt I, was, I had to be very careful with that, uh, that concept. Um, I agree that it, it's, it's not uh, the definition of a colonial power. I, I also feel like the the use of that word is so loaded that I tried to avoid it. And actually, in, in a in a section of the of the story where I quoted you, I I was I, I tried to lay that out and say that you know this is often looked at as as simply a binary proposition where it's either a colonial power or or it's uh, the salvation. And I felt uh, that th- that question itself was more misleading. And my own kind of methodology is to. Is to get uh, to gauge experience on its own. Uh, I understand that there are you know there are issues of uh, you know in each of these realms that I looked into. You know people could say, oh, that's the that's the way a certain kind of power would act. But I did not want to put a definition such as that on that experience. I just wanted to have the experience speak for itself. And at the end of the day, when you finish the story, you have a feeling for the for the story that would give you. A sense that maybe both things are true, or not quite both things are true, but that they, they exist in a certain kind of inextricably linked way. Uh, but that it wouldn't be something so blatant as as uh, 
as an answer yes or no. <laughs> well, the article is is poorly titled but excellently reported. Is China <laughs> – I have to get that dig in there. Is China the world's new colonial power? Uh, if you have not read it, uh, go ahead to the New York Times website uh, at nytimes.com. Just search for China, Africa, and it will come up. Uh, it, it, if you are following this story, this is a, a kind of a benchmark piece. It's an excellent piece. And one of the things that I hope is that will it, it will inspire – other news publications and journalists to take the story as seriously as the New York Times did by sending someone like Brooke to spend the amount of time and the money, of course, to report this story, and also to avoid what the kind of journalism that we've been seeing out of places like Vice with Isabel Young, the reporter who went to the DR Congo and did kind of what are the biggest piece of crap reporting that I've seen in a long time. And I'm hoping that we can finally start moving away into more nuanced reporting, which uh, we haven't seen for a long time. So, Brooke, congratulations. Excellent piece. Really happy that you had time to join us on the show. Uh, Very quickly, what's your story that you're working on next? (laughs) <laughs> I'm actually uh, just got back from Bangladesh where I'm working on something that has to do with the Rohingya refugee crisis there. So it's not about China this time. Wow. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Eric and Kobus. Nice to be with you. And Kobus, you know, this idea that other, you know, that the New York Times hopefully kind of inspires other journalists, uh, journalists and journalism organizations to, to, to follow suit is something that might be, a, you know, in this day and age of declining budgets, might be, a, you know, a too big of an ask, I think. It might be, but at the same time, you know, this is the point that, that I think we've been making a, a lot, is that China-Africa relations end up saying a lot about the West's position in the world. Um, and, of course, that is why, you know, kind of publications like like the New York Times, among one of the reasons why they cover it. But I think it, it would actually be fascinating if more Western um, publications use the China-Africa relationship as a lens to look at, at you know, the world's relationship with the West um, and, and what the West is not doing. Um, you know, it might be a bit, bit of a big ask, but we'll see. It might develop. Well, let's hope so. That'll do it for this edition of the show. If you have any questions or any comments, we would love to hear from you. Uh, it's how Brooke got in touch with me. And, I, you know, we speak almost every week with, you know, four or five different people who just have questions, whether they're working on academic papers or you're journalists or you just had a question. I, and on LinkedIn, I had a gentleman who read Brooke's article Uh, He's 60 years old. He said that he had never heard of this story before, found me on LinkedIn, and said uh, he's fascinated by it. So please do reach out. Kobus and I love to interact with everybody. Uh, We will give you the time of day if you ask. And so please do engage us, and we'd love to hear from you. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesque or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa.